Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. A reading from the book that we love, Psalm 119, verse 33 through 48. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes, not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts in your righteousness preserve my life. Let's pray. Father God, help these words to be true of us. Open our hearts and minds to hear your word and to let it transform us from the inside out. Well, in the 4th century, as Christianity was spreading, Latin was becoming increasingly important as a language. In fact, in the Western Roman Empire, Latin was the dominant language. And this was a challenge for the church because the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the Old Testament, although it was originally in Hebrew, was long ago translated into Greek in a widespread translation called the Septuagint. So you had the Greek Bible, but more and more people were speaking Latin. There were translations that were done, but it was sort of a book here and then a book there. And eventually this was all sort of compiled, all these various translations, into a unit. And that was called the Vetus Latina. There were a couple of problems with it. It was sort of just this hodgepodge, and so some of the translations were pretty good and scholarly, and some of them really weren't. And so in the late 300s, Pope Adamasus I commissions a man named Jerome to do a translation of the first four Gospels into Latin. In fact, Jerome ends up translating the entirety of the Bible. So he goes back to the New Testament Greek, translates that into Latin, and then goes to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and translates that into Latin. This becomes known as the Vulgate. Vulgate. Common. It's the same word there that we get for vulgar. Because in Latin, just like in Greek, there's classical Latin, which is the more highbrow Latin, you know, the more scholarly texts. And then there's the vulgar Latin, common Latin that people use in common speech. And the Vulgate is written in the common Latin. It's meant for the masses. And this grows then in popularity, spreads. And the Vulgate becomes the definitive biblical text for over a thousand years. Well, a lot can happen in a thousand years, and a lot did happen in a thousand years. One of the things that happen is other languages start sprouting out that are derived from Latin, things like Italian and Spanish and Portuguese and French. But also, there's the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And so the Germanic languages start to ascend, things like German and English and Dutch. 
And so fewer and fewer people are speaking Latin. And so what was meant for the masses is now sort of relegated to the few. And certain Christians see this, recognize this, and so they think, well, we need to translate the Bible into the common language, just like we did with the Vulgate. And so last week, Pastor Steve was telling us about the Reformation, 1500s, where people like Martin Luther defied the church, broke the law, translated the Bible into German. And people like William Tyndale, who did the same thing, and translated the Bible into English. And for that was strangled to death, and then his body burned. But before uh, Tyndale, there was a man named John Wycliffe in the 1300s, and he, with other like-minded people, also wanted to translate the Bible into English, and so they did. They went from the Latin to the English, and that was called the Wycliffe Bible. There are a couple problems with it, though. One of the biggest problems was this was before the printing press, and so everything was done by hand, and that made it very expensive, and few people could actually afford it. And probably fewer people could actually read English. Show of hands here, how many people can read? You know, that's amazing. We take it for granted, but that is an amazing feat of human civilization. We can read. And the Bible is affordable, readily available. You know, on my phone here, I get a Bible app. I can download it for free got all kinds of translations and paraphrases and just with a click of a button I get it for free I can have access to all of it well if you don't have a phone like this uh, the print bible is readily available and also pretty affordable but if, if you don't have a bible and you can't afford a bible we have bibles here there's one in your pew you can take it home with you that's a gift for us go ahead right there's really no barrier between us and the word of God No barrier. The Bible is readily available. It's affordable. In a language that we understand and we know how to read. Few people in human history could actually say that. We are blessed. And yet, we don't bother to read it. According to the Barna Group in 2016, 13% of Americans say they read the Bible every day. 14% say they read it more than four times a week. 8% say they read it about once a week. 7% say they read it about once a month. And 27% of all Americans say they don't read the Bible. 61% of evangelical Christians have said that they've read through the Bible from start to finish, from cover to cover, 61%. That sounds pretty good. 61%, not bad. But you know, it's one thing when people, you know, if you're taking all Americans with people who don't regard the Bible as inspired or don't regard it as sacred, that makes sense when they don't read it. But for the people who are saying, oh no, this is the inspired word of Almighty God. Well, I'm not going to read it. That doesn't make sense. There's a disconnect there. You know, in this sermon series, um, 
we're going to be talking about how to rightly engage with the Bible. We, you know, we don't want you to just read it. We don't want you to just have head knowledge. No, we want this to transform us. We want this to indwell us. We want this to be lived out, right, inside out. That's the entire notion of it. So last week, Pastor Steve kicked things off talking about the, the Bible as food, right? It's a great metaphor. It's a metaphor that the Bible uses to tell us how we are to rightly engage with the Bible. And I think that it can also be used to tell us how we sometimes wrongly engage with the Bible. We can treat the Bible like it's competitive eating. You know, I got to read through the whole Bible in two weeks. It's like those restaurants that give you a pile of food and say, can you finish all of this in this amount of time? If you do, you get your photo up on the wall. And that's how we're approaching it, right? Trying to get our photo up on the wall. Or we can approach it like we're just a bunch of bulimic Christians. You know, it kind of goes in for a moment. doesn't last long. doesn't nourish us. doesn't fuel us. What we hear on Sunday has nothing whatsoever to do with Monday. It's what James was warning against in James chapter 1, verse 22. No, I don't just listen to the words. No, do what it says. This is meant to be lived out. So, so how to rightly engage with the Bible is important. And I, I'm going to be talking about that this morning. But it really doesn't matter all that much if you're not reading it at all. I mean, nothing matters how to rightly do anything if you're not doing it at all. You, you could tell me how to, how to get better at my golf swing and how to improve my form and my technique. But none of that's going to make any difference if I never pick up a golf club. Right? We, we want this to be more than just head knowledge. We want this to penetrate into our hearts, into our souls. But the only way it's going to get there is through our head first. Step one does have to be read your Bible. It is a discipline. It is work. And it's not always fun or pleasant. Now, Revelation says this, chapter 10, verse 9. We looked at this passage last week. John here has a vision. This is what it says. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. It's a really interesting passage, isn't it? It's bizarre. You know, I think if John were just making this up, he would probably stop at, ooh, it tasted sweet. But no one turns his stomach sour. It upsets his stomach. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It cuts deeply. It will cut you to your core. And that can be hard to handle. In the Gospel of John, John gives this account. Chapter 6, verse 57, Jesus says these words, Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, 
this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? And what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before the Spirit gives life? The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. And then verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I don't think that Simon Peter understood what Jesus was saying there any better than anybody else. I don't think that the 12 disciples knew or understand what Jesus was saying any better than the rest of the disciples. I mean, what he's saying is kind of confusing. It sounds like cannibalism. It sounds, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood. So what's the difference here? I think the difference actually is they knew Jesus better. Some hard teachings, hard truths are handled in relationship. You know, the Bible in many ways is like an intervention If you've ever seen one of those or been part of one of those, you know that those are some hard truths being spoken there. But the only way it's effective, the only way it can have hope for transformation is if it's done in relationship. So the Bible is in many ways God setting us down saying, number one, I love you. Number two, you have a problem. And that can be hard to handle. Just like those people in those interventions, maybe we just don't want to hear it. Apostle Paul writes these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Sound doctrine doesn't suit them. Sound doctrine is upsetting to their stomachs. Rob Bell kind of comes to mind when I think of this. Rob Bell was a pastor of Mars Hill Church. It was one of the fastest growing churches in North America. He got his bachelor's degree at Wheaton College, Christian College. He he got his master's of divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary. He was a well-respected minister of God's word. And then things started happening. Started noticing some things. He came out with a book called Love Wins, which I really think should have been titled, I Don't Like What the Bible Says About Hell, because that's essentially what it was. See, the doctrine of hell was upsetting to his stomach. So he did away with it. Once he was liberated from that, well, then he looked around and go, ooh, I could be free from all kinds of things that I don't like about the Bible. You know, he gave an interview, and I want to play that for you. Go ahead and take a look at this. I think it's great that you all made a conscious choice to include gay marriage in here. Absolutely. Yeah, why? Because one of the oldest aches in the bones of humanity is loneliness. And it's one of the things that goes way, way back. Loneliness is not good for the world. And so whoever you are, gay or straight, 
it is totally normal, natural, and healthy to want somebody to go through life with. It's, it's central to our humanity. Yeah. We want someone to go on the journey with. When is the church going to get that? We're close. I, I think. think it's evolving. I think it's... Lots of people are already there. We think it's inevitable, and it's, we're moments. A moment away. away from the church yeah, accepting it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because as soon as you meet someone, and most of the time when people have resistance to this, and I say you, this, you think we're moments away? I think culture is already there. And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and coworkers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life with someone. Well, you sound really progressive to me because I've talked to pastors who are still saying well, that. Oh, I think there are a lot of people who, as they see culture moving, their response is to dig in deeper. Yeah. Is to like yeah, hold their ground, yeah. fight against it. Um, so I think that there are both things happening. Yeah. Yeah. There are churches that are moving forward or into that area, and there are churches who are just almost regressing and making it more of a battle. I don't want you to get too hung up on the homosexual issue. That's just sort of the issue du jour. I think I really want to drill down and see what his thought process is on the Bible. It's 2,000 years old. It's written by ignorant men. It doesn't really have power. It doesn't really have authority. The problem is is that the, the gospel is just not good enough news. The gospel is fundamentally insufficient. It leaves people feeling invalidated. Rob Bell can fix that. The Bible turns people's stomachs. Rob Bell can fix that. And all you really need to do is just do away with the passages you don't like. Like Thomas Jefferson was said to have done, right? Went to his Bible, cut out passages. He didn't like the miracles and what have you, right? Picking and choosing this verse, not that one. The scripture declares, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, including the parts that you don't happen to like. Now, we can criticize Rob Bell and Thomas Jefferson, and that may be rightly so. But I think in many ways, we can do something of the same kind of thing even if we don't realize it. What do I mean by that? Well, I think for those of us who have grown up in the church, we, we can think of ourselves as being pretty biblically literate. You know? It's like, I, I know the theology. I went to the Sunday school classes. I know all the stories. I pay attention during the sermons. I take notes. I've gone through devotionals. I've been in part of Bible studies. You know, we're content with our exposure to the Bible. And we think, you know, I'm getting a pretty steady diet of the Word of God. But a steady diet is not exactly the same thing as a well-balanced diet. And if we're not engaging with the Scriptures in its entirety, I mean cover to cover, then we're probably not getting a well-balanced diet we're probably gravitating towards the things that we like, the things that 
taste sweet. You know how I know that? Because I've read the Bible. And anybody who has read through the Bible, or anybody who's even attempted to read through the Bible, knows that you get to passages, you get to places, and your eyes are just going to glaze over. It's just sort of endless genealogies, and it's just uh, this, this kind of sacrifice for this, and this kind of sacrifice for this, and this is what you do with this infectious disease, and that's what you do with that infectious disease, and it's got to be this many cubits by this many cubits, and this many cubits. I mean, it's just mind-numbing stuff. Things like this. Numbers, chapter 7, verse 12. The one who brought his offering on the first day was Nashon, son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver plate weighing 130 shekels and one silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels, both according to the sanctuary shekel, each filled with the finest flour mixed with olive oil as a grain offering, one gold dish weighing 10 shekels filled with incense, one young bowl, one ram, and one male lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs, a year old to be sacrificed as a fellowship offering. This was the offering of Nashon, son of Aminadab. Riveting stuff. <laughs> and that actually goes on. This is just the offering from the tribe of Judah. There's 11 other things that they list out here. And here's the thing. It's really all the same offering. They give the same thing, but you have to read it 12 times. I mean, the Bible needs an editor. Devotionals, not likely to use that as their passage. Sermons, not going to use that as their primary text. I wouldn't even know what to say about it. It's just, there you go. Right? So we... Skip it. This verse, not that one. See, all scriptures God breathed, just not the boring parts. Or how about this? All scriptures God breathed, just not the nasty parts. There's plenty of that in scripture. There's graphic murder and violence and rape and incest and and passages like this. Ezekiel chapter 23, 19 through 23. Yet she became more and more promiscuous as she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. There she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emission was like that of horses. She longed for the lewdness of her youth when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breast fondled. That's pretty vulgar. You're not likely to find those kind of verses plastered on things at Hobby Lobby. (laughs) Devotionals will probably skip it. Right? Pastors probably not going to preach from it. It's uncomfortable. It's offensive. Could get you into trouble. See, all scriptures God breathed, just not the nasty parts. Jerome, the translator of the Vulgate, is quoted as saying this, Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. I tend to agree. This is meant to be God's special revelation. It's God revealing himself to us. And if we're getting a skewed sample of that revelation, 
And we're probably getting a skewed idea about God. Right? These passages that we sometimes overlook, these are worth pondering. They are worth wrestling with. They're worth asking the question, man, God, why did you inspire this? What does it say about you? What does it mean? How does this shape my worldview? These things are worth thinking about. We need to be people who are embracing the entirety of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have your favorite verses or your favorite books. Of course you can. And devotionals are good, and sermons are good, and Bible studies are good, but there's no substitute for reading through the Word of God. And so I want to challenge you to do that. If you've never read through the Word of God, particularly if, if you're not a new believer, I want you to try to do that. I think this is a great time to do it, really. You know, I read through the Bible every year, and over the years I've found that, you know, starting on January 1st doesn't work out so well because at the end it's the, you know, holiday season's chaotic, it's busy, and I always kind of found myself just sort of rushing to get through the end. So now I've been starting, you know, several years ago about in February, and it's more manageable, it feels like. So this is a really great time to start if you've never done it. Now, if you have done it, well, what should you do? Read it again. Right? We want to make sure that we're getting a well-balanced diet. Now, there are practical ways that we can do this. There are tools. There are things that can help us along the way to do this. But let's also not lose sight of the thrust of the sermon series, Inside Out. And I think if we're ever going to really be successful at this, it has to stem from a posture like what we read in that opening Psalms, I long for your precepts. And yearning, that desire, that hunger. And I really think that only comes about from relationship with God. You know, I have young kids. Some of them are uh, just learning to read. And it's a struggle. You know, it's work. And it's slow. You know, where they're just trying to sound out every letter. It's like... You know, right? It's laborious. And, and, and you notice, too, that they're so focused on just trying to read that word that they're not even catching the sentence. They have no idea about narrative or story or theme or any of that. And so the whole experience can be very frustrating, and they can say, I hate reading. And that can be us when it comes to the Bible. It's just frustrating, and it's slow, and it's hard, and we're reading, and just not getting anything out of it. And then there's other times when my kids will come up to me and say, Dad, can you read this to me? So I do. And so they get in close next to me, especially my youngest, Harper. He's very physical. And so he'll just crawl on top of you, right? And he'll wedge himself in between me and the book, right? Nestling real tight. And it's like, okay, now I'm ready to read. And I'll read to him, and I'll, and I'll drag my finger across every word, right? Teaching them so that they can see what those words look like. And then the words start to take on meaning. And they're capturing the sentences, and then they're seeing, oh, characters and narrative and story and there's inflection and there's emphasis and there's voices and the whole text just comes alive when it's done in relationship in a way that 
It never does when they're just trying to read on their own. I think that needs to be our posture here. So as we're approaching the scriptures, we're opening up this book, we need to be people who are crawling onto our dad's lap and say, okay, let's do some reading. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord, the way of your decrees, that we may follow it to the end. Give us understanding so that we may keep your law and obey it with all our hearts. Direct us in the path of your commands, for there we find the light. Turn our heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn our eyes away from worthless things. Preserve our lives according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace we dread, for your laws are good. How we long for your precepts and your righteousness preserve our lives. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.